0: as we continue on in the journey of genesis we now turn the corner we we're 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 halfway through y'all so genesis 1 through 11 were the beginnings genesis 12 through the first half of 25 were all about abraham's life and what did it look like for this patriarch of the faith to live by faith and as we examined that, there were some things that he did that were like, man, I don't know, that doesn't look like a life of faith. And yet it looks very much like our lives of faith, very inconsistent. And yet at the same time, God continues to call us into something more than our behavior and our works. And now we turn the corner in part three of Genesis as we begin the series on Jacob. Uh, not, not Jacob and Esau. Esau plays a role, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about Esau, and we'll, we'll play a, a, a huge role In our sermon today, but ultimately it is through Jacob that everything, all of God's promises continue to roll through him, not his brother, just through Jacob. So as we continue on, what I want us to kind of figure out today is is we've got to make sense of God's ways. I don't know if you know this, but it has been said uh, through an organization called Christ Together, which is a nationwide organization organization that ventures to bring churches, pastors together to collaborate, to ultimately saturate a city with the gospel so that every man, woman, and child have repeated opportunities to hear and see the gospel of Jesus. We're a part of an organization like that, although ultimately it means me sitting in meetings, but ultimately it shapes us to be able to be a people that saturate Fort Bend County, not just to gather on a Sunday, but to be missionaries in our neighborhoods, networks, and to the nations. We say it every week, and it's because it's a hard core, a, a part of who we are. And as we do that, one of the things that was said and was published by Christ Together was this quote that I put before you. We are living uh, during the greatest decline of Christianity in our nation and on our watch. Have you realized this? We are living in the greatest decline of Christianity in our nation on our watch. And I don't mean that as our as in pastor's watch, although that's true. I mean that on our watch. Why is that? Why is the church declining, and yet Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail? That's the promise that we look forward to as the children of God, is that we're going to win. The truth will remain victorious in Jesus, and yet in this moment, in this cultural moment, we're, in the, we're literally like on the buckle of the Bible belt, so we don't feel it. And yet all over our country, we see it, don't we? We see it in the news, we see it in our news feeds, we see it on Facebook, we see it on the coast, and whatever happens on the coast is sure going to shrink and push out whatever happens, whatever world we think we're creating here in the middle, especially in suburbia. I think that we are sitting, I think that we are experiencing this great decline of Christianity in our nation and on our watch for multitude of reasons, one of which is because I don't think the church has answered the appropriate questions. I think we've spent a lot of time answering the wrong questions, like how to make your marriage better, and how to parent and how to manage your finances. You know all that's in, in the Bible. Um, but if we don't learn first how to follow Jesus, um, we'll, we'll never really get any of that right. We could spend our whole lives how to make our marriage better, how to parent well, how to manage our finances. And you can do that and not know Jesus. Actually, people do it all over the world really well without Jesus. But if we would pursue Jesus, inviting, him, inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life, if we would pursue Jesus All that other stuff will take care of itself. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you. I think we're asking and answering the wrong questions, perhaps. I think that instead we've got deeper questions like, What is God up to? Why is he so shifty? What is going on? When we we follow him, why doesn't it all just work out? These are the questions that the text will invite us to ask today. I think it is in this type of question that we will truly be a city on a hill. When we answer these types of questions, we were reading the Sermon on the Mount to Moses. Moses is my seven, almost eight-year-old this last week. And as we read to him, and we got to the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and I read to him Matthew 5, 14, when it says, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. I said, do you know what that means? He goes, no, no. And he smiled and he laughed. He goes, I don't know what that means. I said, here's what it means. The implication here, my man, is that the whole world is in a desert, desolate, dark place. And if we don't live like Jesus says to live, then the whole world has no one to look to on where to go for refuge, on where to go for hope, on where to go for the truth. So it's all on us. God has has, purposed us here to live as a light and salt so that the whole world will know where to find their hope? And he goes, okay. And I almost said it like that. It wasn't quite as animated. But, man, it was, it was, I was like, oh, man, this is good right here. I'm so glad you didn't ask this question, but I made you ask it. But this is the beauty of family discipleship, right? Is that he's asking what does it mean, and, and the implications are, are dire. And so it's no wonder that Jesus, no one, no one who has a light puts it underneath a, bu- a, a, a basket. And we have this light, and yet we've put it under a basket, under well-meaning things. Busyness, though. Well-meaning things. So, I want to venture us today. I want to invite us today to ask deeper questions, because I think the text is going to dictate for us to ask deeper questions. And you may say, what are those questions? I'm so glad you asked. There's three of them, conveniently. But number one is, did we get it wrong? did we get it wrong? And you're thinking, okay, that feels like we're stepping into the middle of a conversation, because we are. So last week, if you were not here, uh, let me catch you up. Uh, we went through basically three episodes of Abraham's life, the middle one being where, uh, where ultimately Abraham's servant cuts a covenant with Abraham, and that was awkward to talk about. Do you remember this? Where they grabbed thighs and so he cut a covenant with Abraham, and then he went off to Abraham's family, and he, he, he had all these things that he had to do, right? It, like, Isaac cannot leave the land of Canaan, and yet he cannot marry a woman from Canaan. You've got to go up to where I'm from, to my family, to my kinsfolk, and you need to find a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant was like, man, are you sure about this? And he's kind of going, and he goes, and he goes, all right, I'm going to make this even more difficult than what it already is. And he says, Lord, he prays. And he says, Lord, I'll tell you what, this is already hard enough, but I need to make sure that I pick out the right wife for my master's son, Isaac. And he waits by the well, and he says, Lord, the woman that I know you will have for Isaac will be a woman who comes out to greet us, who offers us water, and then also will water our camels, which if you look at the context there historically, that could have been 25 gallons of water per camel. She was a hard worker. She was hospitable. She had kindness in her heart. And of course the servant, as soon as he gets done praying, she's there. And he all of a sudden is like, this is my girl right here. And what does she do? She, of course, answers the prayer without her knowing, offers to make sure that the camels have water. The servant then puts on some bracelets and some rings as to say, like, you're my girl. You are here, you have been sent here by God to marry my master's son Isaac. They go home, they send her, all these things. You remember this God of the background that's orchestrating all circumstances, that it's easier to hear him and to follow him when we hear him. But when he's in the background, it's super difficult. We wonder what's really going on. And it's through the circumstances, right, that we have to discern what he's up to. So did we get it wrong? Did the servant get it wrong? And you're thinking, what? why are you asking that question? Well, look at this text that we're in in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac and Rebekah are married at the age of 40 for Isaac. And it is not until the age of 60, it is not until the age of 60 that Rebekah is able to conceive the twins Jacob and Esau so did we get it wrong that she was barren that God had so selected a wife for Rebecca for Isaac that for 20 years she was barren why is it that God would personally select a woman for Isaac to bear out the promises that God made to Abraham that the descendants of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and there would be 20 years of barrenness don't you know over those 20 years the conversation around the dinner table between Isaac and Rebecca or perhaps Isaac and his dad Abraham were like hey man he can't conceive. Did we get this wrong? Did we pick out the wrong girl from home because she can't do what what she actually was brought into the family to do? Not just to to love one another, not just to comfort one another, but to to bear out the promise that God had made to Abraham. And there's two questions that are being asked. I think beneath this is like, did I get it wrong? Did we get it wrong? What happens when God's answer to your prayer ends up being more difficult than you anticipated? Perhaps you're asking that question in this season of life. I mean, I don't know, but did I get it wrong? See, that's one answer, one question you've got to ask. Did I miss it? And I think you've got to test that and see if there's sin involved, like you misheard the Lord or maybe sin was blocking your prayers Particularly, how you men, how you, how you value and how you relate to your wife, right? Peter says this that if you, if you don't treat your wife well, your prayers are hindered. Yeah, that's in the Bible. And so perhaps we gotta, okay, is that, is that a thing? Did I, did I, did my prayer is not being answered because I've mistreated people around me? That's a possibility. You gotta flesh that out, you gotta ask the question, and you gotta start digging deep because you may have missed it. But what if it is actually still the Lord's will and yet it's just not as smooth of circumstances as you'd hoped? So you may ask, like, did I get it wrong? And then you may also then go, what kind of a God does this? What kind of a God orchestrates all this disappointment? All this pain? All this delay? Why would our God do this selectively. Remember, you got to go back to last week where he selected this girl to come and be his bride, and no one could question it. It was so specific, so particular, and now here we are 20 years in the waiting. Friends, this is the kind of stuff that deconstruction is made of. When we are disappointed with the provision of God's promises. All your friends that have quit walking with Jesus because the faith of their youth no longer fits, I think it's because we've invited them into a rhythm that isn't real. Lasers and smoke and experiences instead of following Jesus in the lonely places, the desolate places, the dark places where he likes to shed light, provide answers. And cause us, above all, to be dependent. You know, we're not the first people on the planet to ask these questions. To experience the disappointment and the disorientation that we may have with the Lord. We're not the first people to follow Jesus and go, Okay, that just didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Y'all remember Peter? At the end of his uh, time with Jesus... And Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, the enemy is asked to sift you like wheat. He wants your soul, Peter. And I love what I've heard in the past. I don't remember what pastor said this. And the pastor goes, and Peter must have been thinking right then and there to Jesus, you told him no, right? You told him that he can't have me, right? Actually, he didn't say it. He said, they're going to take you, Pete. They're going to string you up. Your life is not going to end the way you think it's going to end. Remember this? In John 16. Man, could you imagine Jesus saying that to you? But you follow me, Peter. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about anybody else. But you follow. You keep on following me. The reward will be greater than smooth circumstances if you keep following me. It wasn't just Peter. It's all throughout the scriptures, isn't it? Remember Paul? He writes this. In 2 Corinthians 1. I wish I could read the whole passage for us in 2 Corinthians 1, but I'll just pick up in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1. He's recapping and re- recounting for the Corinthian church how difficult his journey has been, and how he has he's been met with all sorts of difficulty. And then he says this in verse 8. For I'm telling you all this, he would say, basically, for we do not want you to become unaware, brothers and sisters of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For when we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Are you hearing, Paul? Are you hearing, Paul, just like Rebecca? Like, why is this so hard? Rebecca basically cries that out in verse 24. If this is thus, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The footnote will tell you, why do I live? If this is going to be how it is, I mean, it is beyond what I can bear. I don't know if your circumstances would dictate a cry like that today or in the past, and if not, surely in the future. And the scriptures will prepare us. We have been utterly burdened beyond our strength that we have despaired of life itself. And in verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You hear, Paul? I thought we were going to die, I thought we were dead. We were as good as dead. There was no tomorrow. This was it. We were saying our goodbyes. But that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you hear it? Do you hear the purpose behind your pain? Do you hear the purpose behind the disorientation, behind the delay? To make you not rely on yourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I don't know what your life is like in the suburbs, but my life just calls out to me, you don't need anybody. You don't need Jesus. You can do this on your own strength. You don't need friends. You're good with just your wife and your kids. You don't need anybody else. You just you just get what you get, give what you need to give, and make the life that you want to make. Live it, love it, enjoy it, YOLO. I don't know if that whispers to you in the midst of prosperity or a whole lot of pain, But God does not want us to be a people, oh, Christian, to rely on ourselves. But on the God who raises the dead. And then he says this in verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Oh, it's on him that we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Whatever he has delivered you from in the past. Let that be a marker of his future deliverance, not just from whatever circumstance that you're in, but of ultimate deliverance for all time. For it is a God who raises the dead. So, what if we got it wrong? God loves you so much that he allows you to get it wrong. Did you know that? That he gave you some freedom to just mess some things up. That's what grace is for, not intentionally. But if in faith you've made decisions, you've done X, Y, or Z, and it still doesn't pan out the way that you had hoped, perhaps there is a greater purpose behind all of that, to get us to be a dependent people. That's the first question I think that the text is inviting us to ask. Like, did, what if we got it wrong? What, did we get it wrong? When things didn't pan out, did we get it wrong? Maybe, but maybe not. But either way, God is beckoning us beckoning us to a life of abiding in the vine of dependence. Now, oddly enough, that's the easiest question of the day. Isn't that fun? The second and probably most difficult question that I think the text is going to ask us is, are we robots? you're going, okay, what is up with these questions? I don't see these in the Bible. They're there. Did we get it wrong, number one? And number two, are we robots? You see, if I had a dollar for every time that I had a question, and I had my own question and received questions about uh, predestination and free will, man, that building would be built, y'all. If I had a dollar for every one of those questions that I had or that we all had, That is a a deep and yearning question that I think all of us have if we read the scriptures, particularly about Jacob and Esau, because it is on Jacob and Esau and this episode in Genesis 25 that Paul is going to write about in Romans 9. We're not going to get there, but not yet. Instead, we need to first look at the text to figure out what's happening here, because there is a declaration here that God makes to Rebekah. So remember that pain, remember that dependence, that maybe I got it wrong. Well, here's the beauty: even when the circumstances don't work out, God answers the prayer. That's how you know you didn't do it wrong, is that God answered you. It may not be the answer you want, but God answered you. And God answers Rebecca's prayer when she inquires of the Lord in verse 22, and then in verse 23 it would say this: "The Lord says this to her, oh man, you see, you feel that indigestion, Rebecca." You feel all that tur- turmoil and tussling in your belly? It is not just one baby. It is not just two babies. It's two nations. Well, no wonder she wants to die. There's a lot going on in there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that's like. I, I don't know. But it must have been real bad. But here is what God says. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you and they shall be divided. Oh man, don't you know that broke this mama's heart? I know what it's like in my household when the siblings can't get along, and don't you know from the get-go she was just a heartbroken mom that this would just never be what she'd hoped. God doesn't shrink back though from inviting her into thinking and depending and praying when he tells her that they will be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And you're going, oh man, that's going to probably play out poorly. And then the Lord says, the older shall serve the younger. Okay. We've just heaped disappointment on disappointment on disappointment. And yet, history plays this out. I want you to see the historicity. I want you to see the truth behind what God said to them. The nations will be divided, it says. And history will tell us that Jacob eventually becomes the people of Israel. Okay? So if you don't know this, in the history books, the scriptures, uh, Jacob eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And Esau doesn't just get renamed Edom he becomes, his descendants become the nation of Edom. And they're known to be living in these red rocks on the southern tip of Israel. Okay, it's red there. That's where they settled as if to fulfill this prophecy of this hairy dude that came out that also then preferred red lentil stew. So they become two nations, and in history, it bears itself out that they were constantly fighting during the exodus this is generations later moses writes or sends a messenger to the king of edom and he says hey look we're not going to take anything from your fields we're not going to take any water from you we're going to tiptoe through the corner here but we got to get through your your nation to get to our safety place because we're being pursued here and the king of edom says this you shall not pass through Lest I come out with the sword. AKA, you're not welcome here, brother. They are divided, they are warring against one another. Generations after Moses, Psalm 137 would say that Edom joined Babylon. If you ever remember this, Babylon is the nation that defeated Israel and dragged the people out of Israel with hooks in their noses and spears up uh, 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 through their sides, right? That's the ultimate pain point for Israel was the siege of Babylon and Assyria, and it was Edom who said this. It says in Psalm 137, verse 7, Lay it bare, Edom said, Lay it bare down to its foundations, may Jerusalem fall. And there is some bitterness here, right? But it goes on. It's not just that they'll be divided, it's that the older will serve the younger. Culturally, this would have flipped everything on its head. Even in Deuteronomy 21, it says, even if there's multiple wives, okay, and even if the younger, the, the oldest, which is where we're getting, the oldest is not your preferred son. You need to give them a double portion of everything you have because that is the right of the firstborn. That's the right of the firstborn, a double portion of everything you have. Now, I don't know what happens in your family. I don't know what kind of inheritance you've had or what you may get. But according to the scriptures, if you're the oldest, double portion. Praise the Lord for you. If you're the youngest, like myself, no double portion for me. And I'm angry and bitter. You see how this could bear itself out? Even according to the scriptures. And so all of a sudden, the older will serve the younger. And again in history, it bears itself out. David slaughtered, it says, in 2 Samuel 8, 18,000 Edomites. That's a lot. He slaughtered 18,000 of them, and then the next verse says this, that throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. It doesn't happen overnight, but in due time, God will make happen what he said would happen. I need you to see the reliability of the Scriptures. I need you to see the reliability of God's character because we're about to get into the deepest part of the Scriptures in Romans 9. So if you've got your Bible, turn there. Because it's about to smack you if you don't like this, which no one does at first, that God would elect some and leave others out into his family. So are we robots? Romans 9 verse 6 says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's basically uh, kind of continuing this argument here that the Jewish people, um, not everybody is going to make it. So you might see infomercials on channel 14 or 22 that says we've got to bless the nation of Israel. That's God's chosen people. It was until it wasn't. Now God's chosen people are those that are true Israel. Who are the true Israel? Those that believe that Jesus is Messiah. And he's going to bear this out. y'all just y'all, y'all keep hanging with me. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all those that have a Jewish lineage are truly Jewish, the Bible is saying. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But it is through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Y'all remember that Abraham had another son, right? His name was Ishmael. And you don't remember the other seven that were named last week. But there were seven more that we named last week. And they all became nations. But it wasn't through Ishmael. It was through Isaac. And now God continues his logic to say, it's also not through Esau, but through Jacob, that everything flows. All of his promises are flowing. Let's keep reading. It's through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, a.k.a. Ishmael, children of the flesh, children of those that were born of Hagar, outside of the covenant of marriage, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That would be the one that can't be conceived through human means, right? It's the same thing through Isaac. It's the same thing with Rebecca. It's no wonder then that 20 years of disappointment went on because it had to have been done through God's promise. This is going to happen. It's not going to be easy. It's not through natural means. It is through God's promise. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and, shall, and Sarah shall receive a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. Check this out. Are we robots? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. For as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the question behind the question is basically this, isn't it? Do we believe because God has elected us Or are we elected because we've believed? You ever ask this question, like around the dinner table with your kids? Probably not. But you might ask it in in the deep recesses of disappointment when you're following God. You go, but I did everything right here, Lord, and it's not working out. Just like Esau would have said and actually tried to say later on. Why does God do what he does? Because of his purpose of election, not according to works, So did God look ahead and go, well, Esau is just not going to be a good steward of my truth. Esau is going to mess it up into the future. He's going to sell his birthright. He's going to give up his, his blessing. And therefore, back here, I'm going to not choose him. Many of us believe that. I would invite you to think that that is a gospel of works. That because he didn't do the right things... God decided to do something else Look at Jacob's life if he is he an outstanding character like I know we name our kids after Jacob But is he an outstanding character that we're like man that guy right there. He's my dude I want to hang out with Jacob. I would trust him to be around my wife and my kids when I go out of town We're not doing that with Jacob. He is not trustworthy Matter of fact what we're going to find out in a minute. He's pretty conniving pretty manipulative. So it wasn't because he had great character, that he did good things in the, in the future, that God selected him to be in his family. It was the fact that God wanted to. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? You know he does. Because you did all the right things because you show up on Sunday, because you give more than the average of 3%, beat the average, not that bad, because you haven't murdered anybody, or committed adultery, or why does God love you? Because he wants to, not because you earned it, because if you are in a marriage relationship, and I heard a beautiful sermon on this this week through through Tim Keller, I didn't plan this part, but I'll just, re- I'll just echo where, what I heard it, where I heard it from. If you were in a marriage relationship, right, and your spouse only loved you because you behaved properly, that would be really terrible marriage, would it not? And instead, they love you because they want to. That you ran out of good favor long ago. And if you didn't, if you don't think you didn't, didn't you did? Long ago. Like on day two. They love you because they're committed to love you because they want to. Not because you've earned it. What a great example and a great reflection of our God. Now, I'll just sit on this for just a moment about are we robots and what about this whole idea of free will? Again, I've preached on this before. I'll be very quick on this here. We have a free exercise of a limited will as humans. Remember Adam and Eve, they fell in the garden, they were free, he says. In Genesis 2.18, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of that one. And what did they do with their freedom? They gave it over to Satan. So ever since Adam and Eve, our wills have been enslaved to sin, Romans 6 would say. So we don't have a free will, we have a limited will. And what, is, what are we limited in doing as humans but sin? Because that's our nature. We are limited by our nature. Birds do bird things. That's their nature. Fish do fish things. That's their nature. Humans do human human things. That's our nature. I can't go to the top of Frost Elementary and jump off and go, I have the free will to fly. I also can't uh, jump in the ocean from California, although I'd really like to. I can't also jump into the ocean in California and choose, according to my own free will, to swim to Hawaii. I actually won't make it. I don't have the ability. Someone would have to intervene to get me to Hawaii, either by helicopter or by a a boat. Someone's going to have to intervene in that situation. I I can't just choose whatever I want. There's a limitation there, and we, friends, are limited by sin. So God has to intervene. God has to intervene long before we may have realized that he intervened. So before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2 says, he chose us however long back you think that happened. So are we robots? No, we are not robots. We have a free exercise of a limited will. But when the Spirit of God raises us from the dead, guess what what gets reinstituted in our hearts? That free will. Now we can choose by the power of resurrection to enjoy God, to follow God, to obey God, to be people of obedience that we did not have before the spirit remade our hearts. Now, the Bible, the New Testament starts to go, you can go A or you can go B, which one you want. This one leads to death. This one leads to life. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to I want to make sure you know that's the beauty of the spirit's presence in you because it is resurrection power for us now what is the last question that i think is being asked in this text not just these first two of did we get it wrong not just are we robots but also what is our price let's keep reading in the text right here in genesis now back to 25 where Esau sells his birthright. I'll go back up to 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You start to see some warning signs here for us. I don't know if you've played this game in your family recently, but we did when we asked our children, hey, who do you think is our favorite?" Hey, Reese, who do you think is my favorite child? Ellie, who do you think is my favorite child? Moses, who do you think is my favorite child? They all agreed on who it was. First, they all said, you don't, you don't play favorites. I said, no, 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 no. This is your dad here. This is mom here. We you just tell us anything? Who is it that you think I favor the most? And they all said Moses, <laughs> including Moses. He's <laughs> like, it's me. He had no shame. Now, we used that exercise, number one, I wanted to see what was in my kids' hearts. But number two, I used that exercise because here's what I know. The rhythms of our family could start to whisper to my oldest that because of preference or because of personality or because of proximity, she may be the least favored by me. Because she doesn't play softball. Because of some personality conflict, she's a lot probably like me when I was a kid. But because of proximity, she's not in the car with me nearly as much as the ones that I'm running to baseball or to softball, seemingly, unendingly. She's not in those cars. She's not hanging out with me. We're not not listening to music and partying and doing all the things that we would do in the car and have really good, uh, honest, deep conversations. So there's a lie that's being whispered, could be whispered to her or to your children because of proximity, personality, or preference, or much more, probably doesn't start with a P, that all of a sudden, I'm on the outs. And that could be a wound. You can see it in Isaac. He loved wild game. And who was it that provided the wild game? My boy Esau. He's a dude. He's a man's man. He lives out there with pocket knives right? He whittles spears and kills wild animals with his bare hands, brings them back over to me to eat, and I love him. Meanwhile, Rebecca loves her little baby boy in the he's a He's a dignified man. <laughs> Would never do such barbarous things as his brother Esau, that hairy man out in the field. I have no hair. I'm here in the tent. Right, You can see this happening, proximity, preference, some personality stuff, and all of a sudden they start playing favorites. There's a warning here, parents. Don't let those things, you better fight against those things to equal the playing field so that you can speak with unwavering confidence, I love all of you equally, and that is not just me saying it. That's the truth. So you know what, Reese, once you come with me, we're going to go do some things. Because proximity and preference and other things just don't lend itself. So it's not fair that you may go on a date with me or go hang out with me. Yeah, it ain't fair. They go all with those things with me all the time. You and me, we're going out. And I haven't done that yet. but Y'all can hold me to it. By the end of the summer, you better hold me to it. Go on a date with my girl. All right, here we go. What is our price? That was not even the point. Esau goes out hunting, right? You see that he goes out. He is famished. It says it right here in verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. It must have been wintertime. It can't have been summertime because you don't want stew in the summer, right? And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. The Hebrew here is like red. Give me the red stuff. I need some of the red stuff. He is absolutely famished, and he needs it now. He's desperate. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. What kind of a brother is that? Not one that's earned salvation. Not one that was good. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. Give it to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob ate, gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And this is where the desperation is in the text, and he ate it, and he drank it, and he rose, and he went on his way. And ultimately, what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that Esau had a price. His immediate physical need or desire far outweighed his delayed eternal promise. And I bet you have a price too. I bet there are things in this life that would cause you to give up, or at least think about giving up your eternal delayed reward for an immediate physical need or desire. And so I would ask you as we end today, what is your price? Where are you tempted to give up the eternal reward of promises of fulfillment in Christ, of ultimate rest in Jesus, where you might find immediate relief from the pain. Immediate relief from the disorientation, immediate fulfillment of whatever physical appetite is calling out to you. When things don't add up, right, most of our spiritual life is calling out to us for delay. And so what is it that we will, are willing to give up all that God has promised in Jesus? Why are we willing to give that up if only these things would be different or better? What is our price? Let's pray. We, O oh, our Father, are like Esau, We will give up what you have promised in your son Jesus of rest to find something that might be relief. We also owe our father, are like Jacob, who see the beauty of an eternal reward and will manipulate our brothers and sisters to get what's ours ahead of time. So Whatever side of the road we land on, whether it be Jacob or Esau, where we're manipulative, conniving and calculating, or whether we are what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says is unholy, bitter, and desperate. Wherever we lay in this, there's no self-righteousness, and immediate relief, and no self-righteousness and getting what we want or what you want for us according to our own means. The only righteousness is found in the eternal reward that we have in your son Jesus who will give us and has given us all that he has and yet the reward is all the more. So Lord as we wait and as we journey as we sojourn in a land that is not our own, as we relate with brothers and sisters that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that we don't prefer, Lord help us remember That immediate gratification is a trap. Help us also then remember that the using of our brothers and sisters is a trap. That we might not despise what you have laid out for us, but our ultimate hope is in a God who raises the dead. May we find our ultimate satisfaction and rest in the finished work of Jesus, and may we wait for the ultimate promises of our God to be revealed when you, O Jesus, return. By your Spirit, help us, guide us, and comfort us as we go. We love you and we trust you. It's in Christ's name do I pray.